Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Welcome. Welcome to the Nook, to Tales to Terrify. Come in. Sit. Munch, drink. Now, now listen. I have a confession. It's serious, and once made, I expect some of you will not see me in the same light and shadow ever again. Are you ready? Comfortable? Okay. I've never liked the Three Stooges. Okay? Some people love them. Some friends of mine are able to assess and weigh the eye gouges one film to another. Some can parse any given exchange of bongs, boings, boops, and... Well, to me, to me it's all the same. One curly is much like another, though I've always been partial to Shemp. Well, that's me, and to me it's all dull, silly stuff. Once you get through the first carried ladder that swings round and swacks a stooge in the face, well, one blow to the noggin is much like another. I did like Martin and Lewis, though. I loved Uncle Milty, Milton Burl. Him, making an entrance dressed like Carmen Miranda. Superb. And Francis the Talking Mule. Nothing wittier. 
Laurel and Hardy, uh, an on-again, off-again thing. I like The Goon Show, and Monty Python was damn near Shakespearean, while that chubby, cross-dressing, what's-his-name, Benny thing, he bored me to tears. Okay? We're not talking comedy, are we? Like that which makes us laugh, horror is different things to different people. Horror, it's an emotion. It's not a literary form, so says Doug Winter. Look it up. Some people cannot get enough of vampires, ghouls, and inbred hicks with power tools. The torture porn of the Saw series and others that keep endlessly spooling forth I find so incredibly, stupefyingly cheap a thrill that I've never been able to stick through one. The trope of the moment seems to be zombies, and I've never been a zombie fan either. Not to denigrate George Romero and the creators of the Dot Rec series of films and of The Walking Dead, but for me, well, zombies take just too much time to get going, and when they do, they're like a disaster and chill molasses, a group of pleasant enough folk who are gradually nibbled away, a kind of... Who'll be the lone survivor, like in the Friday the 13th and Halloween and other franchises? Okay, and we're not talking tropes I like here, either. We are talking the wide range of material that inspires a feeling of horror in us, that arouses a sense of terror. Each of you has his or her own tweaks. My job here is to skim the field to expose you and myself to the whole range of terrifying joys available in the field. So, you don't like one thing? Hold your breath. We'll soon have something, yes, completely different. So, while we'll have H.P. Lovecraft and hopefully Chuck Palahniuk at all, we'll also feature tales by people whose work is equally valid, equally horrific, and equally terrifying to some. I may even someday post my story, Little Girl Down the Way, and you don't want to wish for that. Well, consider that a threat. Okay. Business. The usual... Buy our book, Tales to Terrify, Volume 1, when it comes out, Halloween. Send us stories. Send us ten terrifying minutes from your books. Send us your good words and your critical thoughts, as you've been doing. Send us, you know by now, writers, narrators, novelists. The submission guidelines are all on the website. Just click at the appropriate spot. Money, always welcome. Click and contribute. And, as the late Mr. Steve Jobs was wont to say, one more thing. Our mothership, the Starship Sofa, will soon turn the mic over to Joe Haldeman, author of Earthbound, The Forever War, Forever Peace. You know Joe Haldeman. Joe will use the mic to share his experiences in the world of science fiction literature and business. Tony C. Smith tells me to say the following. Don't be mistaken. This isn't your parents' how-to lecture. It is a front-row seat. As one of the most celebrated minds in the science fiction literary community talks about his journey in the genre, 
And, of course, you could be there as Joe shares the kind of personal advice and anecdotes you won't find in a writer's guide. You can learn how the publishing industry has and has not changed over the years, and what first led Joe to be in a lifelong relationship with science fiction. You won't want to miss this. Go to thestarshipsofa.com and click on the green and white button with the friendly gray peering from the dark. The class begins Sunday, November 11th, and the virtual seats are limited, so enroll today. Okay? Okay. Let's have some stories, hmm? Tonight, we've got two tales that might challenge our notion of what is horror. First up, Maria Alexander is a writer of short fiction, screenplays, and is a wonderful versifier who calls herself the handless poet. Of herself, she says, The universe is full of fuckwits, and I try not to be one. Maria Alexander is a Los Angeles-based writer who only gets away with murder but gets paid for the privilege. You can check out her anthology, Left Hanging, Ten Tales of Suspense and Thrills, by award-winning authors such as Kelly Stanley, Simon Wood, and Nate Kenyon. If you're more poetically inclined, grab a copy of her Bram Stoker-nominated collection, At Loosh Ends, Poetry for the Decadent, the Damned, and the Absinthe-Minded, from Burning Effigy Press. Visit her new blog, Diving in the Snark Cage, if you know what's good for you, she says. And for the full literary rap sheet, visit her site, www.mariaalexander.net. By the way, she wants to remind you that she speaks for herself and not on behalf of her employer. Here now is Maria Alexander's Conspiracy of One. That evening, after his breakup with Allison, Peter Kruppman went online with the miserable intent of being anywhere but here. And there it was, on eBay. This is a fully functional time machine. For four hours, you can transport yourself to anywhere in the past or the future. All manufacturer's documentation is included. All you need is a high-energy vortex. Bid only if you're serious. I am very serious. So Peter, who was very seriously drunk made the outrageous minimum bid of $5,000. Blackout rarely ever struck Peter when he drank, but he entirely failed to recall making a bid at all, much less paying for it, even when he found the bid confirmation in his mailbox the following morning. And eBay's rules are that you can only retract a bid under three conditions, quoted here. You accidentally enter a wrong bid amount. For instance, you bid $99.50 instead of $9.95. The item description of something you're bidding on has changed a lot. You cannot authenticate the seller's identity. He checked the seller's profile. Oddly, his most recent eBay transactions were a like brand new set of Windows 95 diskettes and a $5 pair of multimedia speakers, but he was real enough. Peter wasn't a word fucked. 
Being an aficionado of science fact and fiction, Peter knew every theory of time travel and science. For example, Isaac Newton believed time and space were fixed and immutable, but Einstein's theory of relativity indicated they were bendable. Even Stephen Hawking recanted his original position, stating that time travel was possible by combining Einstein's theory of relativity with recent quantum theory. Closed, time-like curves, that is, CTCs, could be created, bending time in on itself like the escalators at the Galleria, touching every level of reality. As to exactly what could create CTCs was anyone's guess. Peter dreamt of the dangerously narrow wormholes, which were portals to other eras that could snap shut upon entry. He wondered if C.J. Cherry's fabulously sexy Morgane, closer of the world gates, waited on the other side. Peter personally favored tippler cylinders, black holes that had been rolled into a long rope and stretched across galaxies like taffy. A spacecraft that wove figure eights around them could be jettisoned to any point in time. Assuming, of course, the black hole didn't crush one into cosmic dust first. Black holes were the greatest sources of energy in the galaxy. Peter suspected it was only a matter of time before anyone realized how to either mimic their effects or siphon their power. Dr. David Appleton said so. He was the founder of the Time Travel Research Foundation in Long Island, New York, and according to Dr. Appleton, time travel was in the future. But Peter didn't realize that the future was this close. The morning after the bid, Peter awoke at 10.20 a.m. with a horrific hangover. Having used all his sick time for previous hangovers, he stumbled into work and was subsequently fired for being late. He then officially no longer worked in Burbank as a technical support jockey at the Universal Studios office. Before he left, he copped a feel of the silicon-injected girl in the motion picture distribution department and told his anal-retentive boss to lose the trailer load of lard hitched to his pants. Biatch! The demented stare of a straight-jacketed Brad Pitt trailed him down the fourth-floor hallway from a framed poster of Twelve Monkeys, his sketcher scraping the carpet as security escorted him out of the building. The security guard tossed him outside face-first onto the pavement, and the gritty cement bent Peter's nose, breaking the bridge. Until now, Peter imagined himself something of a character from a John Cusack movie stumbling through life with the best of intentions and eventually landing somewhere within reach of his dreams. He wanted to do something significant, yet his basic insignificance mocked him at every turn. When he was a teenager, he insisted that he wanted to be a rock star, never mind his lack of talent and dedication, and he broodingly resented anyone who implied he might be otherwise. As he crept into his mid-twenties, he forsook that dream, yet kept his knack for fustian outbursts. The trouble was, Peter Kruppman did not believe he had a future. He had been saving money to buy a new car, but now he lacked both the job and the money for a new car. PayPal had taken care of that pronto. These material things like cars, comic books, sports scores, and blowjobs kept Peter from thinking about the soupy fog of uncertainty that swallowed both the painted lines and asphalt of tomorrow. Not that he'd travel back in time. Some would certainly assume that he would go back to fix things with Allison, but Peter couldn't care less about the psycho bitch bleached blonde who stole two years, eight months, eleven days, and sixteen hours of his life. 
She could take her new boyfriend and have an ordinary life where the impossible couldn't trip on the prankster leg of possibility. Besides, what about all those so-called paradoxes one could create by traveling back into history? He couldn't travel into the near past for fear that he'd meet himself and cause some terrible imbalance thing of displaced energy canceling out the other Peter. Whoa, another definition of suicide. If he traveled back into the far past, he might accidentally prevent his great-great-grandparents from meeting. Or if he went back enough, he could step on a bug or something, sending it into extinction and setting off a cataclysmic chain of global events. Peter had more than enough guilt from growing up Roman Catholic. He didn't need to be responsible for destroying all surface life as he knew it. Then again, perhaps every time someone made a decision, they created a new parallel universe that followed the consequences of that decision. That would mean there were thousands, perhaps millions of Peters in the universe. He'd also heard of the theory that time moved like a river toward one inexorable destiny that you could place a big rock in the river and divert the flow somewhat, but not completely. Well, you could place a big enough rock, but the energy necessary was tremendous. No. If anything were possible, Peter wanted to see the far future. The crystalline surfaces of glittering pyramids sweeping into the azure sky, towers gleaming against the indigo night with a thousand golden flames licking their crowns, the earth's surface obscured by pure white stratus below. Whether the city streamed with the toxicity of progress like the Los Angeles of Blade Runner or rolled and whirred with the steely precision of a clockwork metropolis, Peter would want to stand in the streets, taste miracles, to wear the slick coat of significance of his time to be the first to see, the first to know, the first to breathe... The time machine arrived two days later via Viking shippers. Two short, burly men with dark blue shirts and matching pants placed a series of strong, thin boards on the floor leading up and into Peter's apartment. They then wheeled in a special pallet upon which stood a refrigerator-sized crate of clean, yellowish wood stamped with this end up in red ink. The pallet's small metal wheels clawed into the boards as they pushed it into the family room. Using two dollies, the shippers leveled the crate off the wheeled pallet and rocked it gently until it rested flat on the carpeting. Peter signed for the object by scrawling on the form attached to a primitive clipboard offered by one of the blue men, and then they left. Peter reverently pried at the crate boards with a hammer's lip. Awe melted over his skin, cold and fearsome as it dripped into his bowels. When the boards fell aside, Peter tore away the pink plastic that swathed glimmering steel. Solid steel that wavered bluish like the ocean's surface painted by a million strokes of sunlight. Fine metallic threads woven labyrinthine to form impenetrable bonds running over cool walls. Eight feet tall and five feet deep, with a V-shaped protrusion from the door as the walls angled inward toward the floor. The encasement was shaped like a futuristic coffin standing on end. Hey, all you zombies, Peter whispered as his hands ran over the smooth, seamless surface. That Robert E. Heinlein story from 1959 about the secret agent who travels back in time to father himself on his former female self. He read it in seventh grade science class as he sat in the back of the room, failing for lack of interest. Only later did hard science loop into his imagination like line to hook 
when his ninth grade biology teacher introduced him to Carl Sagan's Cosmos and Arthur C. Clarke's Rendezvous with Rama. From then on, his mind fished in nebula pools for inspiration. But today, the fish crawled from the deep and panted at his feet. Peter remembered from the ad that a high-energy vortex was all he needed to make it work. The only high-energy anything he owned was a microwave, which he promptly unplugged from the kitchen and hauled to the base of the machine. Once he found an extension cord long enough, he plugged it into the family room wall, then cursed his stupidity. Black holes pulled like taffy into strings, he thought. Not melted cheese strings burned into Pyrex dipshit. Peter turned back to the steel encasement. Holding his breath, he slipped his fingers into the indentation for the door handle and pulled. The hydraulic door swung open with a sigh to reveal the immaculate, soft gray interior and the floor lined with tiny dome lights. Sophisticated equipment panels like air traffic controller screens winked green, red, and white under dark glass lying across the far wall just above Peter's head. Below the equipment panels, an ominously dim glass panel stretched the breadth of the compartment, but at elbow level, slim layers of steel were sandwiched together, supporting the expanse of technology above. Peter tentatively reached inside, touched the velvety walls, hands bathed in reverence as they parted icy air tainted faintly with ozone and pine. Another hydraulic sigh, and one of the layers of steel promptly slid forward from between the others. Frozen with shock, Peter watched as the steel slab stopped sixteen inches outwards and click. A flat screen opened gently from the slab like a slender laptop to reveal a curving computer keyboard embedded into the surface. Peter's stomach jigged nervously as he noted the text wrapped tightly on the radiant screen, but it was too small to read from where he stood. He would have to step inside the steel encasement to consume the entire message. Peter swallowed hard and stepped forward. Slouching with suspicion, Peter examined every winking light in the panels and inhaled the tang of foreign oxygen. White lines of light crossed by green glyphs glowed above him on one of the equipment panels. Red graphs with wavering columns like LEDs on his stereo flickered beneath an endless stream of what appeared to be encrypted data on another. The ominously dim panel remained black, inscrutable. Often awash with dreamy ambiguity, his mind was now seized by the sterile construct like a gloved hand dipped in liquid nitrogen, transformed instantly by the swirling vapors into something astonishingly rigid, reality congealed by a swift movement. Peter examined the keyboard, which contained four more keys with Cyrillic symbols etched lightly into their metallic surface. With all his innards tightly wound beneath his thrashing heart, Peter read, Dear Peter, thank you for your purchase. I promise to include all manufacturer's instructions, and that I will provide soon. However, there are other things you should know besides how to operate the time machine. Things about the future. Are you ready? If life has turned on you like a rabid dog, you needn't worry that it will improve. On November 22nd, Alison Hernandez will call you madly remorseful to repair the threadbare fabric of your relationship. Undersexed and unemployed, you respond with desperate passion and swear off drink. Although she disbelieves your newfound sobriety, she marries you anyway six months later to the briny storm of your mother's tears. Of course, 
your prospects have changed somewhat by then. You found a position with the DMV maintaining computer networks for people who couldn't start a thought fire if they rubbed two synapses together. Sorrow's grit toils your nails, and no amount of soap can wash the misery from everything you touch. Days pass amongst abusive fools and a wife who never ceases to criticize your obsessive behavior. You spent your life building miniature ships at 27-hour stints, memorizing streams of dialogue from English sci-fi television shows or counting Massachusetts license plates as your car sits stalled on the freeway for eight hours instead of calling for help. You even search shabby shops for endless hours to find illegal videos of Pussy Wilho, an allegedly 18-year-old porn star with thick pierced labia that mostly enclose hoary cocks. Years pass of utterly pathetic minutiae as your heart wets your sleepless pillow with ungraspable dreams. You buy a handgun. It lies in a box under the bathroom sink, as cold and empty as your resolve. On your 37th birthday, you meet a psychiatrist who promises to inject your life with meaning. Ready to examine the hideous monster, barely concealed beneath your human flesh, you enter an experimental treatment program that boasts the latest in drug therapies for obsessive-compulsive behavior. Within weeks, blissful relief floods every burdened neuron as the eternal whirring ceases between your ears. Dysfunction that diseased your thoughts shudders and vanishes like candle smoke. Vitamin supplements and dietary changes flush your body with new life. All my nether shape thus grew transformed, as Milton says. Strangely, your intelligence flourishes. Neurochemical mechanisms unbound in ways the researchers did not predict, although you soon discover the treatment program was a cover for a Vietnamese-sponsored test of illegal brain-boosting drugs. Clever phrases seep quickly from cerebrum to tongue like young rattlesnake venom. Mathematics and abstract concepts throw multiple dimensions into your thinking. Nothing is simple. Everything is simple. Rapidly, the position at the DMV darkens and curls like burning paper under your blistering calculations. Self-assured that you will quickly find another way to earn money, you quit without prospects one rainy morning. You want to tinker at home with the artificial intelligence system you began designing the weekend before. When you enter the house, the balm of solitude soothes the morning's frustrations, and you climb the stairs to your den to resume bargaining with dense algorithms. Allison's car sits in the driveway, but she's nowhere in sight. Noises from the bedroom. Rustling, whispering, roar of blood and pleasure. The box slides from the bathroom cupboard through the blackened haze of betrayal. Bullets slide quietly into the chamber in quivering fingers, white with rage and shock. Deafening explosions, torn sheets and puckered flesh. Never a chance to scream. You drive to a remote wilderness in the San Bernardino Mountains until the tires of your car plunge into muddy ruts. You wander into a thick forest. The rain ceases by nightfall, the sweet fragrance of regret rising all around you from the damp grasses. Raising the metal barrel to your temple, you tremble as the baleful coyote cries haunt you from the deeper woods. Headlights swiftly sweep the streets as black military vehicles crash through the sanctuary. Startled, you hide behind the nearest oak, but the heavily armed soldiers who crawl from the vehicles have no taste for you. Perplexed by their interest in the hill just south, you quickly stumble away to avoid detection just in case. 
Light spills silently from behind the trees, casting shadows around their girth from an open door. Enough to see what sits beyond. A slender woman reaches out to you from the light. Do you know what this is? She whispers. You shake your head. You can go backwards and forwards in time and space. Then, looking behind her, she says, Police! Her footfalls scatter until they fade against the hail of bullets, hissing and ringing as they strike branches and steel. Your sharp mind quickly calculates a plan as you step in the time machine, the handgun hanging heavily in your hand. I'm older and far smarter now, you think. I can go back and do it all again. And this time, I'll do it right. It will be simple to hack that antiquated auction network and assume someone's seller identity. Even simpler to hack my own worthless account to produce a bid of $5,000 that I never really made. Peter twisted away from the console when he heard the hydraulic sigh of the door close behind him. And then I'll take your place. For I know where you store the spare key to your apartment. I know your social security number. I have your fingerprints. I know everything about you. Because I am a future you. Hey! Peter pounded the door. But killing you outright would be messy. So in my hideaway, near your apartment, two days before you receive the shipment, I have programmed this machine to one setting. Forward. To the future. To the moment I left the woods, hunted in the dark by the time police. Let me out! I don't want to go! Please! The skin of Peter's fist split as he cried, smearing blood on the remorseless steel door. Don't worry whether or not we can switch places. Others have done it before. The machine hummed ominously. The tiny dome lights winked out, and the inscrutable dim panel flickered to life behind him. Dark woods. Black swarm of time police rushing towards him. But I'm beginning now to fear that I must wait a lifetime... For the time traveler vanished three years ago, and, as everyone knows, he never returned. The Time Machine by H.G. Wells Now, let's not say one to the other, or to yourselves, that time travel is always science fiction. In fact, time travel is almost never science fiction. There's precious little science in the field. It's more just a notion. It's more a way of getting people into interesting situations. It is the babble generator of Star Trek fame, where when you don't know how to get something done scientifically, you create a device which lets you do it almost magically. Anyway... Let's just not say time travel tales are science fiction. I've written four of them, and none are science fiction. As regards this story, can you imagine anything more terrifying than having your whole sad, miserable life laid out in front of you, then realizing that you are your own worst enemy? So, thanks, Maria. As I listen, I am reminded, Maria once spent a night... In here, in the nook. It was after a world horror convention that happened in Chicago, and she opted to spend a day or so extra here in town to read at Twilight Tales to see the sights. I offered the nook's guest bed as a cost-efficient way for her to do that. 
So on the day after the reading, I took her on a tour of the neighborhoods where John Cusack used to hang out. We visited her dad's old neighborhood and made a tour of historic Graceland Cemetery. It's just up the way from here. If you're ever in Chicago, uh, Graceland, by the way, it's, it's better than Rush Street or the top of the Willis Tower, also known as the Sears Building. Someday I'll post pictures. Anyway, thank you again, Maria. And if you're ever in Chicago, the nook's still here. A Conspiracy of One was read for us tonight by a newcomer to this narrating business, Stephen Howell. Steve grew up near Tampa Bay, Florida, currently lives in South Carolina with his wife and two sons. He's a 22-year veteran of the U.S. Army and is an aspiring science fiction author working on his first novel. His plan is to retire from the service next year and focus on writing. And other than recording bedtime stories for his kids from dusty combat zones, this is his first narration, and thank you for it. Well, welcome home, Steve, and welcome to the podcast world. And by the way, a career in the Army served horror author Weston Oaks very well, so best of luck with that first book. Let us jump now, without hesitation, to our next tale. It's by Angela Slatter. Angela Slatter is an award-winning writer based in Brisbane, Australia. She works primarily in speculative fiction and has focused on short stories since deciding to pursue writing as a career. That was in 2005 when she undertook a graduate diploma in creative writing. Since then, she has created an extensive portfolio of stories, many of which were included in her two compilations, Sourdough and Other Stories, that was in 2010, and The Girl with No Hands and Other Tales. Here is her... This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. The Bones Remember Everything by Angela Slatter I walked for three days. I had not left the note for Rilke, left her no clue. I had not thought of my lover when I entered the woods. The wolves were shadows, 
and did not bother me. Need for neither food nor drink slowed my progress. There was only the voice, which no longer simply inhabited my dreams, but hummed through the waking hours like a daylight lullaby. I kept going until I reached the place where I was told I needed to be. Ingrid, welcome home. The path ended abruptly at a prickly barrier, a wall of thorns so thickly grown and woven that I couldn't make out what lay beyond. The bushes stretched as far as I could see. Left and right, the briars had melded with the usual flora, and there was no way past to be found. I reached up in frustration to touch one of the branches, but I misjudged and snagged a finger on a long barb. I put the digit in my mouth and sucked away the welling fluid, tasting its metallic tang. In front of me, though, the drop of blood remaining on the tip of the spike gleamed, then began to eat away the brambles, just as acid attacks metal. Soon there was a wound in the wall, big enough for me to walk through. I gave one final look back to see the Ica continue its work, erasing the obstacle as if it had never been. Ravens hopped across an untamed lawn, and a grey stone tower rose up in the middle of the clearing. Lining the crenellations were statues, not gargoyles, but cats. A single door at the base stood ajar. I did not hesitate, the voice urged me on. Inside, at the bottom, a disused kitchen. Then, halfway up, a library with shelf-lined walls. Finally, at the very top of a spiral of age-smooth stairs, a circular room waited there. Four arched windows, set across from each other to the four compass points, let in light. In one area was a spinning wheel covered in cobwebs. A stool was placed in front of it. A four-poster bed crumbled quietly, its hanging all decayed, and bookshelves had been picked bare by mice and birds looking to cushion nests. Against another part of the wall hung a frame made of bones, Stretched across it was a canvas of skin. At its foot stood a rough-hewn table, and on that table were thread, a needle, a quill, and a very large jar, almost an urn, really. At first I thought it filled with ink, but closer inspection showed it to be a sluggish dark red, uncongealed. The lid came away with surprising ease. The scent of iron made me dizzy. The very air seemed to be waiting. The quill was sharp, and when I picked it up, I felt a tingle in my hand that thrummed up my arm and made my shoulder ache. I dipped the nib in the blood ink and stood in front of the strange canvas. I swiftly sketched a woman, the one whose voice sang from my dreams. Without knowledge, I understood that she shared my blood. The liquid soaked straight into the surface, did not run, or smear. It knew where it was to stay. When the drawing was done, I waited for the outline of the face and body to dry. I picked about the chamber, trying to find a trail, a story in the leftovers of a life. There was little enough, and I realised that the only truth was that of the bones. I closed my eyes and saw a girl sitting by a window, 
the north-facing window of that very tower spinning. The thread her efforts produced was long and fine. Flax entwined with strands of her own dark hair. She had been at the work for some time. Every so often she pricked her finger and the blood welled, then soaked into the filaments as she caressed them, with something like love, something like hate. The pain didn't bother her, for she was spinning her own life, making herself into a tale, her own tale of blood and flesh and bone, and she would endure, for the bones remember everything, and the bones will call. I shook myself and opened my eyes. The fine silver needle was surprisingly easy to thread. As I sewed and embroidered, the fibres took on the required colour. Ebony for hair, white as new snow for skin, red as a ripe apple for lips. I stitched and stitched, and wondered what would happen when I finished. Still I did not sleep. Day and night no longer mattered. I did not mind, though, for the voice called me by my name and told me its story. Once upon a time, there was a queen. She was beautiful, as they all must be, but she was sad, as they aren't supposed to be. Her husband loved her, and he wanted children. She did not. In the course of time, though, she fell pregnant, and two daughters were born. The pain of the first, the pale twin, she tolerated, but the second caused her such agony, such a rush of hate, that she cursed the child. The dark twin did not cry. She was and always would be a child of silences and depths no one could plumb. The other was shiny and shallow, a sprite of light and laughter. Two children of the same womb, of the same birthing, should have been loved equally, but were not. We were not. I was not. Ultimately, love hangs on acts, however unimportant they may seem at the time. It attaches to what people do or say, and our memory of those things, gestures that travel to the heart and lodge there for a while, at least. They build a foundation for kindness and love, from which a child can learn. I have no memory of such acts. I remember the chill of indifference. I remember living in the shadows of my mother's unhappiness. I remember being famished my whole life, yearning for a crumb of affection, just one that might somehow quell the hunger inside me. But I starved. My sister ate her fill, and her heart grew fat and happy. She did not know want. She did not know how sharp your soul grows when it's deprived how its ribs stick out like dead trees on a bare landscape. She did not know what it was to never be sated. She could no more escape her fate than I could, but, even knowing this, I hated her. Hate her still, I think, perhaps more than I hate our mother. I don't know why, I just know that I do. From my earliest years, a cat would come to find me no matter where I was in the castle. The day my mother found the nursery filled with the creatures, Marietta and I in our gold, bare-boned cribs, and my delicate sister sneezing wildly, was the day mother banned cats from the court. They stole the breath of babes, she declared. My nurse, Ella, 
told me otherwise. She kept her own little cat, thin as grief and black as sorrow, hidden in her room. Your mother is fearful, she explained. Cats don't steal breath. They simply help souls cross the lonely spaces between life and night. She was dark, Ella, and beautiful. Her olive skin burned by the sun when she spent her hours outdoors picking herbs and bulbs. She was different from the other women of the royal retinue, quieter but far more self-assured. They were bright parrots, gaudy and loud. She was a hawk, watching, always assessing. Sometimes she would look at me as if she could not quite decide what action to take. I think, in the end, she decided I would do more damage left to my own devices. It was Ella who fed me, brushed my ebony locks each night before bed, rubbed creams into my skin to keep it luminously white. She taught me magic ran in my veins, and how I might tap into it when needed. Hers were the hands that sewed my wedding dress, and hers were the hands that washed the blood from it after everything fell apart. Hers was the kindest touch I knew. But we did not share blood, so it did not really count. She was not my mother. Life was not unbearable, though, until the wedding day. I was not loved, but I had no reason to punish anyone. I existed in shadow, spent my time reading, learning from Ella, building a store of knowledge that I thought I would never use. I simply existed. My father, having demanded children, gave us only passing attention. When at last he began to feel the weight of his years, his thoughts turned to the matter of succession. We were mere daughters, but princesses can produce heirs. My mother had failed to provide him with a son, so he had to find sons-in-law who would do him proud. As the oldest, Marietta had been married off a year earlier. Raised properly, we did not question the men chosen for us. I was simply happy that father had selected a handsome boy, tall and dark, not some old man whose breath stank as he rotted away from the inside. My betrothed was not too bright, but his kisses were sweet. I thought perhaps I might love him with time. But he was merely a possession, something that I acquired through no virtue of my own. My sister's husband did her the disservice of falling from a horse three days before my wedding. She did mourn him, I believe this, and quite sincere was her grief, but it did not last long. My wedding dress was ivory, a miracle born of Ella's fingers, yards and yards of silk and tiny pearls torn from the sea, far away from our little kingdom, and bought from the man who once had wings. Ella braided my hair into glossy ropes, intertwined with strings of gems. When she was done, I dripped with diamonds and emeralds. Never wear emeralds, they said they will bring heartache, but I loved the stone more than I feared the risk. In the mirror was a beautiful girl, seventeen, but behind her lurked another image. A second woman waited, a little older, but still me, ephemeral, standing like a fetch, 
dressed in black, hair wild, as if a mighty storm inhabited it. I leaned closer, hearing hard because it seemed that I was becoming fainter while she grew more solid. I did not fear. What had I to fear from myself? But I did wonder why she was there. Then the door opened, and my parents stepped into the room. My sister was to have my husband. She was the eldest. Her need was greater than mine. The kingdom required a prince to replace my father, or at least to get an heir. I would eventually be found a new husband, but not today. Not this wedding day. My sister would have this one. I looked back at the mirror and watched the girl in the wedding dress fade. The woman in black froze into focus. I nodded to my parents. Would my sister like my dress? My jewels? They went with the husband, did they not? They did not hear the sarcasm. I was a shadow child after all. Send my sister to me and she will get her prize. Golden Marietta, with her fat, happy heart, waited in the corridor. She entered, and I told our parents to leave us so we could swap clothes. Only my nurse remained, watching us with a wary eye as we undressed. I think she waited only to see what harm I might do, what havoc I might wreak, how I might reward her training. I laid the ivory silk gently on the bed, like a dead child. Marietta let her black morning gown pool on the floor, as if casting off a mood. When we stood naked, the light twin and the dark reversed images, I moved close and placed my hand on her smooth belly, settled it over her womb, and thought of heat. Nothing will grow here, I swear it. You will get no joy of these stolen things, Marietta. He can plough you nightly. But nothing will take root. A hundred men may labour over you, but nothing will come of it, sister. I slapped her, and blood spurted from her nose, staining the pale cloth of our wedding dress. She reeled back and stared down at the mark on her belly. The shape of my palm and fingers stood out like a brand. She watched as I dressed in her widow's weeds, pulled the gems from my hair, and let it loose as a storm cloud. Help my sister dress, sweet nurse, then pack my things, for I will leave this place. I found my erstwhile fiancé in his chamber, surrounded by valets and groomsmen readying him for his bride. He preened before the mirror, and as I stood behind him he started. Perhaps he saw my double image. I sent his men from the room, opening the front of my gown, before they had even pulled the door to. Any bride will do, it seems. Give me this one thing, my love, my heart. I ask but this, and I will leave you free to marry my sister and have this kingdom. He made no argument, but lay back as I rode him like a witch, like a whore. He cried out, and I felt his seed take hold inside me. I left him spent. In the few days it took for Ella to arrange her departure, I passed through the corridors of our tiny castle like a whirlwind. None stood in my path. My mother I saw several times in whispered conversation with my nurse. 
telling what things might go and what things might not be taken. My father merely watched with a kind of horror when I entered a room. Courtiers stepped aside, as if too close contact might contaminate them. I did not see my sister in those final days. We rode out early one morning, a fine carriage for myself and my nurse, and a cart piled high with possessions. Four men accompanied us as guards. We came to this tower. It seemed we wandered aimlessly, but I wondered later if Ella directed our path all the while. The men hefted the furniture and belongings up the winding steps, and then disappeared into the forest in short order, taking both carriage and cart with them. There were people living nearby, forest folk, hunters and the like, cottages, huts and hovels, housing women and children who waited for husbands and fathers to return from elsewhere. Others still lived alone, women and men both, happy with only the silence for company. For a while we saw them every few days. Ella would trade with them for provisions, bartering her healing skills. I paid them little mind, stuck to my round room and brooded as my belly grew, read the books Ella had brought with her, consumed the knowledge therein. Eventually they disappeared, those forest dwellers, moving away to places where, presumably, they did not feel quite so uncomfortable with my brooding presence in the tower. Soon enough, the animals as well deserted our part of the woods. There was no longer even the familiarity of birdsong. There was a child, though. Of course there was. When she was born, I called her Dowsabel, so she would be sweet and gentle, and gave her to Ella to take to my sister, to let Marietta raise the baby I'd stolen from her womb. It may have seemed kind. It may have seemed like forgiveness. Ella did not return. I don't think I expected her to do so. In this tower, I delved deeper and darker into magic, living as long as I could, until I sensed illness sinking its claws into me. Young still, yet I sickened and could not cure myself. I wondered if the evil I had done poisoned me. The more I studied, the more I realised the only way to cheat death was to wait. I began this work. I put in place spells that needed simply the final word to set things in motion. I put it off, drinking in whatever life was left to me, until the day I felt the tightness in my chest was not going to release, that the harshness of my breathing would not ease. The cyclone of magic that tore me apart, peeled the skin from my flesh, filleted me, built the frame and made the canvas, then liquefied my organs and poured it and my blood in this jar. I sundered myself piece by piece, using every bit of craft I had learned, and I waited. I waited for you. My hands move lethargically now, putting the last stitches in place. My golden hair is gone. It has been woven into the design. Patches of skin are missing from my arms, and the torn bodice of my dress shows that I have used a knife to take squares of my own hide from there too, small swatches to quilt the thing on the wall before me. So many needle marks mar my fingertips that the flesh is a mass of tiny wounds. A pallid pink jelly seeps from them. Where the canvas is marked with this pigment, a tidy pageant has made itself. My lover, her journey, 
lays itself out. I watch as I work, my attention divided between finishing the tapestry and taking in the tiny Rilke as she searches for me in a sparsely sketched series of scenes. I see her tiny simulation leave the Battle Abbey and ride to the love nest in which she'd installed me not many months since, when I'd come from the cathedral city. I had thought to find some peace, somewhere to flee the years haunted by memories of my dark-hearted mother and my strange half-sister, and the soul-blackening guilt that I had failed each of them in turn, being neither obedient daughter nor protective sister, and in the process losing them both. In truth, I had wandered without plan. I simply fled. Had I thought about it, surely I would have realised that the convent was one of the church militant's outposts and would not likely be a well of serenity. Rilke was the abbey's marshal, and she tried to be discreet. But the truth was that the church did not need her order to behave as did other nuns. These women conducted their holy worship by sword and fire. You don't belong here, Rilke had said, and the honey of her voice took the edge off the words. I was in the laundry, folding newly boiled sheets and applying the heavy iron heated on the wood fire stove to shirts and breeches of rough cloth. I remember the warmth of her breath on my neck, the firmness of her grip, the muscles in her broad back. Rilke convinced me that my path did not lie in the cool calm of the cloisters, nor on the training fields, nor indeed with any of the officers of there. What she offered seemed as good as any other road open to me. In the tiny cottage, comfortable and bright, a little like the one of my youth, the idyll was sweet. But the haunting began that very first night. There's a voice in my dreams, I told Rilke. Dreams? Dreams mean you've not enough to occupy yourself. You need exhausting. She grinned and pinned me to the bed. She had no concerns about leaving me alone. I thought of those moments as I watched the tiny figure inscribed in red ride into the clearing to find the cottage empty. She rested only long enough to stuff a sack with provisions. I wondered if Rilke questioned why she hunted for me. By her own admission, there had been many women before. Perhaps it was love. Perhaps it was lust. Perhaps she did not like being left. The wolves follow Rilke. She does not dismount from her tall horse during the day unless she must. And she keeps her sword unsheathed. At night, she builds a huge fire and sits close by it. She does not sleep. When she comes at last to the tower, she approaches the door and finds it locked. Her head cocks to the side as she listens to the conversation floating out the windows and gliding down to her. Rilke stands back and kicks at the door again and again until the lock gives up the ghost under the onslaught of her soldier's boots. She mounts the stairs. When she enters the room at the top, I give her a weak smile. She doesn't seem to notice, or at least she doesn't return the greeting, but rather looks past me at the huge tapestry I have made my work. It moves. It is not moved, but moves. The woman inside it dances about. She smiles and laughs, 
filling all three dimensions. It is only a matter of time before she steps out. There was not enough, says the woman on the wall. Rilke looks at her, uncomprehending. She holds her sword, but seems to have forgotten she has it. Rilke's eyes flick to me, but she cannot bring herself to approach. There was not enough, repeats the woman, as if to a simpleton. I needed more to live, to be well, she smiles. And this great-granddaughter of mine has given me almost all she had. There is still more that I might give. For once, I can commit to giving what is needed. And when I do, the pain will stop, the ache will cease. The quill lies on the floor beside my feet, and my fingers are slippery when I pick it up. I put the sharp end to my throat and jam it in deeply, then pull it out. Blood spurts over the tapestry, which soaks it up like a sponge. The tableau shudders, giving birth, and the woman walks forward as I slide slowly off the stool. The bones remember everything, the woman says softly, and in their memory they call out to the ones we need. She barely looks at me. My vision blurs, and it feels like looking through water as I watch her move closer to Rilke and raise her hand to the dark, lovely face. She strokes my lover's skin, as if it's another material she might use. Her blood and bone tell me what you meant to her. She leans in and presses her lips to Rilke's. She stops only when the nun's blade slides between her newly animated ribs. My grand dame deflates like a punctured wineskin, loosing a sigh that wants to be a scream but cannot quite make it. Such a waste, such a waste. Yet soon I will be free of this flesh and its memories. Rilke kneels beside me. I wonder if she will carry me down the stairs. I am very light. I do not think she will return to the Abbey. I think she will go in the direction of a place where she might lose herself and ignore the calling of bones that are not her own. Thank you, Angela. I love tapestry. Whenever I can, I get one in a story of mine, because, well, there they are up in the wall in shadows, folds, dimension to a tale, unicorns, dragons, huntsmen, fierce hounds, tearing flesh. The images always seem formed somehow by magic. They always tell a tale that seems to be incomplete enough to allow you to make up the rest of it. I love this story. Obviously, I, I love dark tales that press the frontiers of what is our medium here at Tales. Angela's work here is half fairy tale and half chilly horror. 
As mentioned, Angela Slatter has a master's in creative writing and occasionally teaches that which she has mastered. Said instruction being conducted at Queensland University of Technology. A 2009 graduate of Clarion South and the Tin House Summer Writers Workshop in 2006, her short stories have appeared in Australia and internationally. Her work has been listed for honorable mention by Ellen Datlow, Gavin Grant, and Kelly Link, and she's been nominated three times for the Aurelius Award for Best Fantasy Short Story. And along with the Aurelius Awards, Slatter has been nominated for the Dittmar Award on two occasions, as Best New Talent in 2008 and for Best Short Story in 2010. Angela is currently working on a duopoly consisting of the novels Well of Souls and Gate of the Dead. And thank you, Elise Goodman, for narrating The Bones Remember Everything. I love her voice. Elise was born in London and lived there through childhood. She now lives in Manchester and has done so since the early not-years of this century. She teaches English to foreign students, which, she says, is fascinating and rewarding. I've been interested in science fiction since I discovered my father's Isaac Asimov collection one summer, aged about 11, she reports, and promptly sat down to read the entire robot series. She is interested in literature, travel, cookery, music, and writing. She says she likes Manchester because she finds there's something compelling, if a little obvious, about arched brickwork and rain. And that will do it for this evening. Tonight, two tales that test the limits of what is horror fiction, and next week, next week, hmm, Next week, there'll be something completely different. Maybe a Lovecraft, maybe a John Shirley, maybe a... Well, maybe it will be something that just shivers your timbers. I hope you'll be here. So, up and doing, bright and chipper, follow Mahler to the door. Ah, yes, the weather. The weather seems to have broken in the low 70s today, maybe into the 50s tonight, maybe now. I hope you've brought something to snuggle into, some warm bit of fabric to protect you through your walk in the night to your home. Well, it's not far, is it? So if you encounter a high-energy source somewhere between here and there, yeah, just avoid it. Too much knowledge is truly a dangerous thing. Remember that when you finally hop into bed, when you close your eyes, look to the future, your future, your long-term future, and begin to form your immediate but pleasant dreams. Hmm? This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many... How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Literary Productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.